Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpera, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today we are speaking with Christiana Greger, who is the author of The Education Trap, Schools and the Remaking of Inequality in Boston, uh, new from Harvard University Press. Tina, welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Uh, So if you would start off by telling us just a little bit about yourself and how you came to this project. Yeah, um, so... um, I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, and I first became interested in education really as as an undergrad, um, where I was reading some of the works of John Dewey, um, an an educational theorist who is still widely taught and known um, in education schools and in history classes um, and political theory classes. And... I was really interested in, you know, his understanding of education as a way of transforming society at large Um, and not just for him, you know, as a theory of as a theorist of democracy, interested in political democracy, but also in economic democracy and how to make the workplace and the economy more equal. Um, And for him, education and sort of the skills and habits that students learn in schools were really important for this sort of broader social transformation. Um, And he's writing in the early 20th century, but of course we know historically that um, inequality and, you know, the, the inequalities of the Gilded Age and of our economy today are more unequal than they've ever been. So, um, I I wanted to kind of ask the question of like, why does his vision of education fail? And yet, why do we still have this uh, hope in education and being able to transform society? And so in graduate school, that led me to take on a much uh, kind of broader project that um, led me into social and economic history and looking kind of at the political economy at large to understand the relationship between our educational system and uh, our economy. And that's that led to this, this book that tries to argue that although education for some um, worked to you know, allow them to achieve better paying jobs um, was a, a real important source of social mobility, if we look at how education and the economy were really growing up together since the late 19th century or so, um, the the inequalities of a new corporate economy also became part of our educational system and were reproduced in many ways by our educational system. So uh, I, I want to make sure that we talk about implications for today, but why don't we start by sharing a little bit about uh, the, the, the historical case studies that you focused on. So, so tell listeners a little bit about which group of workers are you looking at 
uh, over what period of time and where? And what, why don't we go from there? Great. Yeah. Um, so the the book is a study of Boston, um, and I chose Boston because in in certain ways it's it's unique. Um, it has a very long history of uh, of education um, and is is very important in new new educational reform movements dating back to the 19th century. It has some of the oldest private uh, colleges and universities. So um, as a place to look at education, it has a very rich ecology of schools that make it a good place to to study the role of education. Um, but in, in other ways, it's um, the period that I'm looking at, which is the late 19th um, and early 20th centuries between 1880 and 1940 about uh, Boston is also representative in um, in a number of ways. It's a a major center of manufacturing um, and of commerce as a port city. Um, It has a large number of immigrants, um, about the same percentage as other northern um, urban areas in the United States. It has a smaller percentage of African-Americans, but so that makes it a little bit different. But for looking at sort of ethnic politics, uh, it's a good a good place to look for a lot of the a lot of the trends that are shaping American cities at this time. Um, so, for looking at the relationship between schools and the economy, I think it's it's both uh, offer some unique advantages, but also I do make the argument that some of the major trends that I see in Boston are also happening across the northern United States. The South is a little bit different. Um, so. Um, and yeah, I look at really across all sectors of the economy. So each chapter focuses on changes in training for work and the nature of work in low-wage work, uh, craft craft workers and in, in the industrial sector, and then white-collar work in the professions. Um, so I'm trying to really encompass changes across the entire economy. And so... so- uh, so tell us if you would, what is what is the story about the relationship between each of those segments of the labor market and their educational experience? Do they have the same experience? Is it different? Do they all benefit? Do none of them benefit? Sort of what's going on in this period that helps us understand something about the relationship between access to education and, and upward mobility or improved wages and working conditions? Yeah. Um, so the major shift that I'm tracing is we can think about it as sort of a, a time period when formal schooling is really not, it's, kind of, it's sort of marginal to pathways to most types of work. So most people in 1880 are getting you know, maybe an eighth grade education, but most are not going to school beyond that. And the way that you access work is through informal family networks, ethnic networks. Um, and then most of most workers learn the actual skills that are involved in their work on the job in a apprenticeship or mostly usually a, like an informal kind of apprenticeship on the job. Um, and the, the big change across most sectors of the economy um, is that schools by 1930 and 1940, schools really do structure pathways into work. 
but I look at kind of the uneven development um, across different sectors and yes, and how that, that was not the same, the same, there are different dynamics depending on the sector. And I think the, the clearest case of schools structuring access to work in this period and sort of the biggest success story um, in, in some ways, if we think of, you know, education as a means of providing access into a good job, that's really driven by what's happening in white collar work. So this is a period of massive expansion of large corporate bureaucracies, um, new kind, you know, new kinds of workers like secretaries and typists and accountants and bookkeepers that do the growing paperwork of the new economy and sales work. And these are some of the fastest growing occupations in Boston. Um, and they, and, and students are using schools, um, first proprietary schools, so private schools that offer f- new kinds of business training. And then the public high school is, this is a period known as the high school movement where basically public high schools become like enormously expand. And I argue that the main, we can only explain that expansion by seeing how students were using high schools to access, to gain the skills that they needed to access um, these new types of work. And a lot of those students are women, are second generation immigrants, are working class students that might not have had access to, you know, they might not not have had a family connection to a business owner or to um, some, an, an employer in the corporate sector. So for these populations, schools are really key in accessing these jobs and learning the skills um, that otherwise they might not have been able to if they didn't have you know a mentor to to teach them so this is also the the sector where i kind of root the ideology of education as you know as a means of social mobility in this period i think it had a real material basis uh, in what's going on for these students Um, at the same time I think this that story is just part of bigger, broader changes in the economy that are shaping other sectors. And so I'll give the another um, sector that I look at is what's happening in industry and for craft workers. And there, um, instead of the sort of successful successful proliferation of schools that offer training for these kinds of jobs um, in for craft workers and in industry we see a lot of conflict between employees um, craft craft workers often represented by craft unions and their employers and a lot of this conflict has to do with training or basically they are fighting over control of training because the apprenticeship process is so important for craft workers. That's kind of the basis of their power is being able to control who has access to skills and who can learn these skills. So in this sector, employers are, they, they want to increase new forms of training as kind of a way to avoid craft union regulation, but craft unions are, uh, because they are some of the few workers with organized power, they're able to kind of limit forms of industrial education for craft work. And 
Instead, what we see um, in a U.S. in the U.S. context is that employers uh, basically, in order to undercut craft union power, they basically try to shift their whole workforce away from craft workers and toward other kinds of workers that can be trained easily and in schools. And white collar work is kind of the the, the flip side, but really these are sort of two sides of the same coin. So employers can rely on um, white collar workers as sort of a growing sector of the economy in their large scale industries, um, as well as immigrant kind of machine operatives that might have some basic public school education, you know, learning basic literacy and numeracy, but then can be trained very quickly on the job. Um, and that becomes these these new types of workers that then have school-based training as opposed to on-the-job apprenticeship training, um, that becomes a way for employers to basically reduce their reliance on powerful craft workers. So is 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 that part of the story in some ways in addition to those those histories of 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 US schooling? Uh, as a site for acculturation of ignorance and, and teaching skills of obedience and docility for the industrial workforces. Is that part of what we're seeing here with this experience you're seeing of, of that kind of, of, of what outsourcing of education and training for low wage and industrial workers? Yeah, I think, I think so. Um, I think the, the focus on education, there's a strain of, histories of education um, uh, informed by kind of Marxist or Foucault, Foucauldian ideas about, right, yeah, education as a form of training workers, disciplining workers, you know, to become a good, <laughs> a good factory right. workforce. And I think we see, we see that in, um, in the growing role of public primary education for the most part. Um, and I, I think, yes, for, for many reformers and for many school administrators, you know, the primary education for immigrants is, is th- those, those um, kinds of middle-class traits, we could call them, or behavioral, behavioral norms, I think are very important for what they want to um, what they want students to get out of schools. At the same time, I think if we're trying to understand what is driving school enrollment, um, I think there are limits to what we can explain through sort of a top-down uh, approach or the idea that you know that schools rise because reformers want to acculturate immigrants or acculturate other populations. And I think a a bigger driver is actually student and family demand um, and a lot of working class demand for the ability to access schools because they open up possibilities to enter new kinds of employment and white collar and sort of the public high school and white collar work are the biggest um, examples of that. So I see sort of both, both bottom up and top down pressures that are shaping the new the new school system. And, and so how does, if, if we look at the emergence of specialized professional education in fields like law and business, how does that fit into mm-hmm. this story? Yeah. Um, so part of what I argue in what's going on in white collar work is that 
as so so white collar work had been in the 19th century a fairly exclusive you know primarily native born white men who were uh, mentoring alongside a practitioner they had a good chance of becoming a business owner um, themselves at some point so um, white collar workers are are kind of a, an exclusive group at the beginning of this period and then you see this you know dramatic expansion uh, the feminization of white collar work into a lot of what we would call pink collar work so kind of the clerical and sales work at the bottom ends of large bureaucracies um, is is quickly feminized and i think we see um a reaction to that process to these changes in white collar work by a traditional the traditional elite but also sort of new new interests in the corporate economy um and at the same at the same time that white collar work is changing the significance of education and specifically a high school diploma is also changing. So if high schools had been much more exclusive in the 19th century, by the early 20th century, you know, many, the majority of young people are going to high school. So that no longer becomes a exclusive credential. And so I think both based on what's changing in the economy and changes in the educational system, we see a new really a new strategy among elites to try to use higher educational credentials. So in, in Boston, it's through private, their colleges and universities are only private in Boston in this, at this point, um, but kind of use connections to these institutions to control access to the highest paying jobs. And we see this in, uh, in the field of business and the, the majority of college students say at Harvard in by the 1920s, 30s are entering new fields of business management. Um, and I look at how basically through the, the correspondence between university officials and employers in or personnel managers in in large businesses in this period, they're really they're really selecting um out kind of the same, you know, academic skills are somewhat important, but also social skills, extracurriculars, and other kinds of personal characteristics uh, like race and religion and ethnicity um, basically become, we can see behind the scenes of, of how, um, how this new elite is, is being shaped and formed through the relationship between universities and businesses, and I think this is where I'm, I, I'm kind of criticizing the, or both identifying where ideas about academic merit and meritocracy come from, right? Because if you're looking from the outside, as many college graduates are entering the top, you know, the most lucrative jobs in the economy, um, that I think to the outside that sort of sends the message that oh you know these are these are jobs that reward academic merit that reward um, a lot of education and higher skills but we can kind of see what's going on and i think there's a lot of ways that that it that really what's happening is is kind of a, a form of elite reproduction um rather than a a true meritocracy. So is, is it, is it too much to think about, about sort of that development as a, 
a reaction against the successes of some kinds of that education that really was creating opportunities for for upward mobility for certain groups? Was this a sort of a reaction against certain categories of elites to ensure that they could maintain existing hierarchies? Is that putting it too strongly? No, yeah, I, I think that's a good way of, of characterizing it. And I think that helps us sort of the, both of those dynamics together help us understand how we, you know, how we developed the, the ideology around education and, and not sort of try to suggest that education does, you know, is, is useless or education doesn't, you know, provide real um, benefits to certain populations, at least, um, while we can also see how at every stage of school expansion, um, elites were very good at basically erecting new barriers to entering the top positions um, so that, and this, this would be in a way that we can challenge the, the idea that, you know, just expanding education is going to be the best policy tool to expand, to increase opportunity um, because we can see how elites basically, as soon as, you know, you get to go from high school to college or, um, maybe now we can talk about um, the college, a college degree to uh, even a higher professional degree. But basically, with every new step of the credentialed ladder, um, elites can kind of form new new barriers and really um, control control access to these top positions. And that in that way, education, you know, is, is if we think about education as a solution to poverty, for example, it is mm-hmm. it is simply insufficient because at some level, as you say, what we wind up doing is ratcheting up credentials and there are still a, right, a finite number of good jobs. So what we're doing is we're altering who gets them rather than sort of expanding opportunity more broadly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I also point out um, in a chapter on. Um, on low wage work, which where we see exactly the the sort of ideology of a lot of progressive reformers at the time that believed that, you know, people were poor or unskilled workers were or what they low wage workers were what they called unskilled, quote unquote, um, and and they were paid low wages because they didn't have enough skills. So their solution was, all right, you know, if we can train domestic servants to be better domestic workers, then that's going to increase their wages. And that strategy (laughs) kind of uh, totally failed um, because just providing more, more skills, um, basically it doesn't, yeah, doesn't, doesn't affect the determinants of wages, which are much more broadly about power in the economy. and there are real, we also see sort of, I found, which I didn't know before doing this research, but um, through the through this entire period, um, if we just look at kind of working class children, uh, African-Americans were getting more education than any other, than European immigrants um, or native born white children in this period. And yet they were completely excluded or almost entirely excluded from the field of white collar work. So no matter how much education um, 
certain populations had, it didn't, you know, you can't overcome job discrimination just through an educational approach. I mean, it captures it rather succinctly, doesn't it? Highest rates of yeah. education and lowest rates of, of access and mobility. Right. Um, so, so why don't we use that as a way to sort of push us forward into to, to some more, to more uh, contemporary periods? So as you point out, right, we've got 1940s to 1970s, give or take. We've got... Uh, radical declines in inequality, radical declines in poverty. Uh, this sort of is the burgeoning of, of the great American middle class in this mid-20th century period. And at the same time, we've got also this massive expansion of access to higher education. Is that right. just a coincidence? <laughs> um, well, so I think the the dominant narrative in in the field of economics, uh, I mean, I think historians see more factors going on, but I think it's still a very powerful narrative in economics that then um, influences broader broader discussions of inequality today uh, is that what is reducing inequality in this middle 20th century period is the huge expansion of public higher education, um, right? And, and things federal policies like the GI Bill that basically allow more people to access higher skills and in a sort of um, history of rising education and also technological change throughout this period, um, the argument goes that since more jobs are, technological change is creating more jobs that favor higher skills. Uh, therefore, in order to access these jobs, you know, more and more people need higher levels of education. And if more people can compete for uh, these, these highly, highly skilled jobs, then inequality goes down. It sort of puts downward pressure on wages at the top because you have a bigger pool of, of workers um, who have access to these skills. And in those narratives, what's happening now is a sort of a, a slowdown of educational expansion or basically not enough educational expansion to keep up with these changes in the labor market, which then allow those with the most skills to concentrate, sort of be concentrated at the top, leading to rising inequality today. So in that narrative, there is a very clear relationship between educational expansion and inequality and the policy implication is that, you know, we need more education in order to reduce inequality. And I think if we, based on what we learn, um, what we can learn about the early 20th century, which was a period of both huge educational expansion, but also rising inequality, I think that really, um, that should lead us to rethink this sort of neat equation between the two and the, or the neat relationship between the two. And I, I want to sort of move the discussion and focus the, the discussion of inequality on how much power workers have in the economy. And I think if we are looking at, at factors that have to do with power um, and specifically the power of workers, those are the those are the factors that mattered a lot more for the reduction in inequality in the middle of the 20th century than education, um, or at least 
um, made it possible for education to kind of help uh, reduce inequality. But the middle of the 20th century was a period when um, we see the rise of industrial unions. So rather than craft unions, these are more inclusive unions across skill level. Um, and these unions are, and kind of the, the height of organized labor in this country, These this is sort of the political basis for federal welfare policies like the New Deal, the Great Society, new, new social welfare programs, and also for really high rates of progressive taxation. Um, and I think those, those are the factors that matter a lot more for inequality rather than just education. Um, and since the 70s, right, education has continued to expand, but now inequality is going up. Um, and I think we can look at what's happening to organized labor, what's happening to taxation, our social safety net. Uh, and those are the factors that are primarily determining inequality today. So, so it, 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 it's, and, and not to oversimplify the argument too terribly much, but, but across sort of all of these periods from late progressive era into the new deal, uh, we see, I think you're arguing that sort of it's, it's expansion government aid that allows for increased working power, working people's power that is having much more of an impact than education itself is. And sort of conversely, in the contemporary period, it is the weakening both of, of organized labor power, right? We're at what, 6% mm -hmm. of the private sector workforce is unionized as we speak. Um, and the, the sort of the, 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 the moving away from progressive taxation, et cetera. You're arguing that sort of it's not that education is not important, but that those larger forces wind up being much more important as we try to explain mobility and worker conditions and safety. Yes. Yeah. And I think another way of thinking about it is that education is not sort of monolithic, but can have different effects on different populations and different parts of the economy so that in periods of, say, like the mass expansion of public higher education um, in the middle of the 20th century, that was primarily going to populations that had not, you know, had a college education before, um, was sort of opening up opportunities. And I think what we're seeing more today is the way that, um, right, with, with, extremely high levels of t student debt, tuition rates, um, and, and a very differentiated uh, educational system. Basically, we're, we're allowing the educational system now to be a, a even more effective tool at a tool of, of elites to concentrate power through, you know, access to elite private institutions, um, rather than see the kind of expansion of free public education that I think is much to the extent that education can, you know, attempt to, to equalize at least access uh, or the possibility of accessing jobs um, that that we see more in the middle of the 20th century. And what we're seeing now is kind of schools being more effective at concentrating that power. So that American higher education in, in significant ways is, is back to functioning as a system for reproduction, reproducing existing hierarchies. Right, yeah. Um, so you've, you've hinted at, at a couple of things, but in our, 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 our last few minutes here, um, 
what should we do? How should we be thinking <laughs> about about how to address this problem? Yeah, I mean, I I think um, I'm I'm really making the case that you know education is well education is is not a bad thing. <laughs> it's still important. <laughs> I think to the extent that um, education matters for the economy, um, it you know we can't just sort of pretend that we can we can jump out of the reality that we live in, you know, education is still, still very important. Um, I think one of the, one of the arguments um, that I make about just the relationship between public and private education um, is that in the early 20th century, public high schools were basically a, you know, they, they displaced this new growing sector of what we could call the for-profits of their time, um, these new business colleges and business schools, uh, and and were successful because they offered a free public alternative. And I think, um, so similarly today, I think, right, like one, one step in the educational realm would be to ensure that we have kind of free public alternatives at the college level. Um, but even that's, right, that's not going to be enough. And I I kind of want to shift the debate from the educational realm to thinking about what is actually going to uh, increase worker power and um, more directly reshape the labor market. And I think there, um, you know, we do see in in uh, new in professions like teaching um, or other occupations in the service sector, healthcare workers now. Um, there are renewed efforts um, to organize unions. We're seeing kind of um, a labor revival, I think, in a lot of these service sector um, occupations that are some of the, you know, now with with manufacturing uh, kind of jobs that had been the formerly, you know, good paying, good union jobs. With those declining or, or almost gone, I think we, we see new more promising efforts to try to make these other service sector jobs uh, pay well um, and have have better working conditions. And I think we're we're seeing efforts where those are the efforts to rebuild the labor rights of some of these jobs are also ways politically to make the case that, you know, communities should have public resources for things like schools or nurses, social workers. so I think I would I would want to turn our, our attention to some of those efforts of uh, of worker power and, and ways that we can empower workers to advocate for policies that are going to help kind of the, the broader working class. And that's going to that's going to do more, I think, to reshape the economy than just say sort of, you know, more more skills um, for everyone. You've been listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we've been speaking with Christina, not Christiana, which I I, I appallingly <laughs> said earlier. I apologize. Christina Groger, who is the author of The Education Trap, Schools and the Remaking of Inequality in Boston, uh, recently out from Harvard University Press. Christina, thank you so much for talking to us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much.